Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. So this is Stefan Partolo. Today, we have a very engaging and critical conversation with Jose Luis Vivero Pol about reframing narratives of food and food systems as commons. Jose works at the UN World Food Program on food crises. He is an engaged scholar associated with the universities of Louvain, Cordoba, Edinburgh, and the Spanish Right to Food Observatory. His research interests include food valuations, which includes rights, commodity, public goods, and commons, and food systems in transition. In particular, he focuses on how normative food narratives shape food policies and collective arrangements in customary and contemporary food commons. In the podcast, we discuss current food narratives and food implications, food as a commons framework, which Jose has developed, different schools of thought on commons, the difference between water and food being framed as commons. We also discuss the influence of COVID-19 on food systems. Uh, This podcast is being recorded on March 27th, 2020. And we also discuss what Ostrom School of Thought can learn from reframing food commons. And of course, at the end, why interdisciplinarity is necessary. Enjoy. Welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen and and Michael. Thanks for for inviting me. Let's start by having you give us a background of where you grew up and what you studied and how you became interested in the theory of food as a commons. Okay, well, uh, very briefly, I'm I'm, I'm an Spaniard. I I was born in Spain. I grew up in Spain and uh, I became an agricultural engineer. And I was always, I I always felt attracted to not just agriculture in general, but initially through, to attracted to biodiversity. I was meant to, to be an ornithologist, and then later on I became a professional botanist for several years. And at a certain point in my, I realized that I had an inner pulse. Uh, to to travel and and to to go abroad and, and that's why I started also working in, in development. That was in uh, in '98, my my first mission to Georgia in the Caucasus, and then since then I've been um, basically working professionally on, on the uh, food security domain, uh, development uh, in the global south. But I've also been I've been working with NGOs, uh, with the UN system, with the EU, with with the Red Cross system, and with uh, also I've been doing consultancies. And at the same time, uh, I was always attracted to academic work and 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 uh, doing research. And I was doing let's say private research while I was working on development. But at a certain point, I realized that I need to have a break in my professional career, and that's why six years ago. I decided that the time had arrived and, and I took a break to do a PhD in Leuven, Leuven in the French speaking part of Belgium. And, and that's why, I mean, I, I let's say, undertook a, a research on, on how do people value food and, uh, and why, um, let's say, how these uh, normative valuations of food, how do they shape uh, policy preferences? And, and and, and the point is that I arrived to this, let's say, trans, uh, transboundary question or uh, interdisciplinary question based on my previous experiences on, on food policy backstopping, uh, right to food, food sovereignty, and, and food projects uh, in, in different countries. And I realized that uh, everything was always referred to the market uh, and, and to making people, I mean, facilitating people's access to the market and how to streamline the market policies for food, etc. And that's why when I had time to, to have a break and, and I had time to think, I went to uh, the, in, my, in my university period, that's why I decided to think, why do we think uh, of uh, food as, as a pure commodity? And that's why, that's how everything started. I'm interested in this idea that there are the current narratives of the food production system, which you mentioned there, and we've also spoke on the phone yesterday, a little bit about your background and interest in that. And what are some of those narratives which have, are currently part of the food production system? How have they impacted food policy currently? And what do you think some of the narratives uh, should be for changing the food system? Well, uh, the first thing is that, I mean, you, you have a rightly pointed out to the word narrative. I mean, the way that we perceive uh, food or the way that we value food or, or our understanding on what food is definitely is very personal thing. For every every person, uh, there will be a, a possible explanation of what food is. 
but uh, and and therefore it's, it's a social construct okay it's a it's a phenomenological thing that uh, but at the same time there there are dominant narratives on what food is and and you will see that uh, i mean uh, i'll give you an example on on that is very enlightening for everybody is that uh, well there are many people that they consider that food is a human right actually legally speaking is one of the economic social and cultural rights that has already been screened in the uh, international covenant therefore is a is a legally binding human right okay uh, but that's also a social construct because there are many count well not there are many people and in and several countries that they don't accept that uh, that approach to food they don't accept that uh, food narrative and basically they deny that food couldn't be considered as another human right. Uh, a good example is the United States, that basically the official position of the U.S. government is that uh, they have consistently for many decades already, they have been denying the consideration, the narrative of food as a human right. On the other side, uh, there is a widespread uh, dominant hegemonic narrative that food is a commodity. And actually, it's already labeled in that way in many official documents in many countries, and also is the dominant narrative within the UN system. And as a commodity, uh, the, the most uh, suitable and the, the, the best, the most appropriate uh, allocation mechanism is the, st- is the market. Let's say the free market that right now is a neoliberal market, but it's basically the market as a tool to redistribute uh, food based on, on the, this type of invisible hand and the equilibrium between supply and demand. But but it's basically the market because it's it has been previously agreed and accepted that it's a commodity. Therefore, it's, it's a good that can be commoditized in order to maximize profit. And, and uh, my approach to that is that, well, I accept that food is a tradable good and food, of course, can be traded in the market and many small scale farmers and, and big land owners, they produce food for the market. But not only that, it's, food is not only a tradable, a tradable good, it's not only a commodity. And, and well, I would like to emphasize that I accept that food can be commoditized uh, sometimes for some purposes, but not always and not everywhere. Because there are many other, I mean, several other dimensions of food that cannot be monetized. They can never be monetized. The idea that food is a human right, that as I, tell, as I said earlier, is accepted by many countries and it's the official doctrine. Well, uh, the fact that it's a human right, it, it means that it cannot be monetized because as a human right, it's priceless. Food is also a cultural determinant. And each of us, we always remember our grandma's, uh, I mean, recipes, you know, the smell of specific foods that they remind us uh, our our early ages. And food is also a sacred good for the indigenous people all over the world. Food is, uh, in many cases, medicine. But at the same time, throughout history, food has been used as a public good in order to appease the, the hungry mobs and in order to maintain uh, social stability. Food is, a, is also a renewable human uh, natural resource, and it's it's constantly produced by nature. A, a good example is uh, the one that you know perfectly. I mean, fisheries and then fish stocks. So there are several dimensions that can some of them can never be monetized, and some others can always can only be let's say partially monetized or monetized with uh, a lot of conditions. So my my approach, uh, let's say the theoretical approach to the idea of food as a commons is that as many other dimensions cannot be properly monetized in, in, let's say, cannot be properly valued in monetary terms, food cannot only be considered a commodity and therefore should be considered something broader and therefore, and that's why a commons, a commons or a public good or a commons and a public good and a human right. You know, one of the other things that you you mentioned that you were interested in was the different schools of thoughts about commons uh, or different types of schools of thought within common scholarship. And when you look at food as a commons, it makes me think, and I'm, I'm looking at your uh, proposed sec- conceptual framework, which you have in your sustainability article. We'll link to these different articles in the show notes for those who are interested. And you, you propose 
these six dimensions, you know, as you mentioned before, that food as a public good, as a human right, as a cultural determinant, a tradable good, uh, as you mentioned, food as commodity, of course, and then renewable resource and essential for humans. And I'm wondering what type of school of thought you come from as a, as a common scholar or, or developing this theory of food as a commons and maybe uh, what some of those other different schools of thought are. Okay, well, that's a very interesting thing. And I, well, in that case, I think that a, you will see, I presume that uh, both of you and, and, and I, we are, we will position ourselves in different schools of thought. Well, and, and that uh, tracing back my, my approach to that is that, uh, well, actually before and uh, starting my, my PhD, I was just slightly familiar with the commons uh, meanings and then the commons, uh, let's say, theories and the commons approach. I understood the commons uh, more, more or less from the Eleanor Ostrom's uh, approach, you know, it's the commons, common pool resources, um, like water, like uh, marine resources, like, uh, like land in some cases. Yeah. But then uh, the more I was uh, deepening in, in my approach to food as a commons, because I was always wondering why Eleanor Ostrom never specifically said that food could be considered or managed or governed as a commons. And actually, Karl Polanyi, neither, because uh, he was saying that, uh, if I remember well, land, money, and work, they were, they were commons, and actually they were commoditized, uh, but he never mentioned food, per se. So um, I was basically reading a lot of authors, and, and at a certain point, I realized that there were different, there were a multiplicity of meanings of commons, depending on who was let's say, writing the documents or depending on the epistemic epistemic position of each researcher, scholar or philosopher. And at a certain point, I had to do uh, my final chapter in the thesis. It, it should have been the first because it was the chapter where I wrote extensively on the different schools of thought on commons. You have the schools of thought, of course, the Eleanor Ostrom's one, that is the economist uh, approach uh, with Samuelson and, and the, the, all these guys that were working from the this uh, rivalry and excludability approaches. But also you have, of course, uh, probably you know, uh, also you are pretty aware of the, the legal uh, school of thought where you have uh, public property, you have uh, state property, but also you have collective property. and uh, But also you have the historians that they have been accounting and they have been researching on on the different approaches of previous civilizations and, and, and in historical times how they how do they were approaching to natural resources or to knowledge etc um, in addition to that also we have the the scholar I mean sorry the the activist approach uh, to the commons and uh, that it's based a group of people that they say that as the commons has multiple meanings, the commons are pretty much another social construct. And uh, probably you will be familiar with uh, Richard Linebaugh, Peter Linebaugh, uh, Peter Linebaugh's statement on there is no commons without commoning. So a commons, it can be any resource, material or immaterial, that is governed collectively by people, and it therefore is considered a commons by the people's uh, instituting power, and uh, and it's governed collectively for the common good. And it can be either water, the usual one, or it can be uh, seeds, that it's also another uh, usual suspect uh, in Eleanor Ostrom's approaches. But at the same time, it can be food, or it can be knowledge, like Wikipedia, it can be the atmosphere, as now, you know, the, the big institutions are already considering the global commons and, you know, atmosphere or air pollution it is actually a public bad. So it's part of atmosphere could be part of the commons. So commons at the end, it can be anything. And, and I'll give you another example of public spaces now in urban areas that some of them are occupied by, by the cities, by the neighbors, by the citizens in order to do something in those public areas that have been abandoned. So it can be anything that we as a society or we as a village or we as a nation, we consider that it's worthy to be governed in a collective way. And, uh, and that's my approach. And that's why 
departing from the idea that uh, anything can be considered commons if we society so consider, I think that uh, due to the multiple characteristics of food, the first and foremost to be an essential resource for human survival, we need to govern food uh, as a commons. Let's say everybody, we are, we all of us, the entire human population, we are eaters, and therefore we have a saying: we should be, let's say, stakeholders in um, governing or designing and governing uh, the, the food system, the food system in our communities, the food system in our regions, in our countries, and even at the world at the world level. Michael, you want to jump in there? Stefan, you can edit this out, but I have to... Bueno, tengo que preguntarte de dónde eres en España. Uh, English, I guess. Where are you from in Spain? Uh, well, I'm from Galicia. You know, that, oh, okay. it's, it's a very well, interesting yeah. place for, for uh, commons, especially all the, the seafood and, uh, and yeah, the, yeah. The, the coastline fisheries, etc. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I've never been there, Mike. And Michael, on top of that, uh, in Galicia, probably you know that one quarter... Uh, 25% of the Galician surface, the territory, is mm. owned and legally owned and governed in a collective way. So they are called Montes de Mano, uh, Montes Vecinais, Vecinais de Man Comun, Montes Vecinales en Mano Comun. Mm. And they are legally speaking, uh, they are still based on uh, these Visigothic uh, parishes and uh, the, let's say, the form, the old German uh, customary rules that uh, people, they have uh, a saying and they have uh, an aliquota part of the mountains that are surrounding the parishes. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I've never been to Galicia, but my stepmother um, was is the Valladolid, and I have aunts in Santander y Zamora, but I've never been quite over to the northwest. Okay. Um, well, so I, um, to get back to what you were saying, when you were talking about treating food as a commons... It reminded me of a discourse I've heard about water, about whether water should be treated as a, as a private good uh, from a governance perspective or whether it should be treated as a basic human right. Um, so whether water should be, um, you know, whether basically we should adapt our governance arrangements to insisting that everyone has sufficient access to this or whether we should allow, you know, as you said, the laws of supply and demand to more determine who gets what where. Does that make sense to you, that comparison, or do you see there being important discourse, the differences between like the discourse about water and food, the way I've characterized it? No, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that you have just brought up the, that issue, because uh, actually it was already included in one of my, my speaking notes here. Because and, and not just water, actually I wanted to make a, a group with uh, the three essentials for human bodies, that is air, you know, we need to breathe, we need to drink, we need to eat. So earth, <clears throat> water, and food, the three of them are essential elements for, for every human being. And uh, however, the normative evaluation and uh, the policies, because, I mean, first we, need, first we define narratives and how, first we define how do we value something, and then we design policies and re legal regulations based on our social construct. Okay? So that's why I'm, I'm fighting so much and I'm struggling to to work on the narratives because the, later on the policies and the legal frameworks will come and therefore and of course the subsidies and the money but but the, the real clash the, the struggle now is how to define things how we value things how do how, how do we consider as a group specific items and in that case well you can i mean you have rightly said that uh, water water has a lot of similarities but also a few differences with food food mm. as a natural resource it's like water, okay? It's produced by nature, and we human beings consume, like fish stocks or asparagus, uh, mushrooms, or game. I mean, hunting, uh, hunting food. But but there are also there is also cultivated food. So it's something that we human beings we produce with our efforts, and that's uh, John Locke's uh, idea. No, I mean, whatever it's uh, produced by humans being sweat with our hands, it belongs to to us. And, and that's the huge difference with water, because we don't produce water, at least not for the time being or not commercially speaking, because it's extremely expensive. So water right. is only produced by nature, and we only clean water and, and transport water to, to, to households. So, well, that's, that's a, in a slightly difference, but it makes a lot. And that's why, I mean, between air, water and food, 
food is is totally privatized and is fully commoditized for the time being and there is and and basically the the narrative of food as a commodity is the hegemonic dominant one and yes uh, a few authors even a few scholars are contesting that and i'm making an asterisk later on i will refer to an article that i produce on on a, a, a literature review in the last century on, on how different how scholars were approaching to food as a commons a public good or or a commodity and, and i'll give you a, a few figures but but uh, food is, is fully privatized water is in the process of being privatized and, and I'm, I'm sure that you're pretty aware of that in many countries water is still legally uh, let's say frame as a public good or as a commons there is now there is a, a european uh, citizens initiative the first one actually that uh, was claiming uh, with with uh, let's say more than 2 million signatures from more than seven european countries and it went through the it went through the european parliament and actually also through the european commission with uh, more than 2 million european citizens requesting the commission and the parliament to officially consider water as a commons, public good, and human right in Europe. And uh, But at the same time, you are also aware of all these privatization schemes that are already ongoing in many countries, especially in the global south. It's, it's quite obvious, I mean, quite well known for everybody, how is the, the approach to privatize water in Chile, for instance, and uh, the IMF and the World Bank schemes that are promoting and are encouraging a privatization of water resources in 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 Bolivia or also in 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 countries like Mongolia, and 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 it's a, it's in the process of being. So we we can see the tensions and we can see the contrast between between different stances and and let's say political or ideological positions. And in addition to that, I would like also to add a third point on air. You know, breathable air, because air so far was widely considered as, as a commons, okay, the, uh, breathing air in the atmosphere, the combination of oxygen, nitrogen, and, and a few other elements, that it enables us to breathe and, and therefore to live, and it, we need to treat it as a global commons or a global public good, fine. But, but recently, I mean, we have seen this process, we have started to privatize everybody's earth, because these carbon, carbon, uh, carbon schemes, you know, the this carbon bonus that uh, that uh, you are as a as a, an, as a as a country or as yeah. a private industry, you can if you pay, you, you get the polluting rights and you are and you are able to pollute everybody's air as long as you pay. So that's to me, it's an obvious privatization scheme of the commons. So it's a it's an enclosure of a global commons, uh, and. And that's why, I mean, at certain point, I was uh, basically, I mean, I'm still thinking about uh, it could be a, a very interesting idea to write a book on, on, uh, on, on the social construct and the normative considerations of those three essentials and uh, how we can see that they're in different processes and there they have different status and, and, and therefore and the pros and cons of considering the three essentials as uh, public goods or commons or uh, absolute commodities or, or private goods. Hmm. Take the to take the water step, uh, water issue one step further, and I don't know how far the, down this rabbit hole we want to go, but I had heard in places like New Zealand there were considerations of um, formalizing human rights for, say, rivers to to kind of anthropomorphize natural features uh, legally. Have you heard about that, or is that engaged with what you're talking about? Yes, well, I mean, it, it fits well, because, I mean, you know, the consideration of uh, a specific river as uh, an entity that uh, deserves to be entitled with uh, rights, not human mm -hmm. in this case, but at least, uh, let's say, entity rights, it, it's another social construct. I right. Mean, it, it, can be, it can be something good, or it can be something bad, uh, let's see, in the future, but at least it's it's not a given, you know. I mean, the, when we say that the, the sun sets in in the in the west, well, that's a given. Okay, so it's it's always been to be like this. We can re rename the west and we can call it the uh, Picturici, but it's going to be there. <laughs> yeah. 
but, but the consideration, the human rights are social constructs. Uh, right. Let's say the, the moral valuation of killing someone as something good or bad is a social construct. Uh, the idea that the market is the best, uh, the most appropriate mechanism uh, to allocate uh, any given resource is a social construct. So my point is that, well, we need to discuss a lot on, on these social constructs. They're not givens. I mean, there are things that are givens. Okay, gravity law is a given. Uh, but the consideration of food as a commons, the consideration of water as a human right, or you know, the, the breadth and the extension of rights uh, only to humans or to corporations. I, I mean, you have just mentioned the river in New Zealand, but I can give you another, a lot of examples on how we have already reached at a certain point, let's say several decades ago, the idea that corporations, they have, uh, let's say, legal personalities, person, personhood, it's personhood, no? They have legal right. personhood, like humans. So they have they have rights and duties. Well, and they they have more advantages than rights uh, or than duties because actually now now right now there is a debate in the UN system whether the the corporations they should also be bound by the human rights regulations or not because the corporations are saying well we are not humans so we don't need to comply uh, with the human rights uh, observations. And, and on the other side, you know, the, the human rights uh, lawyers and, and, and advocates, they are saying, yeah, but I mean, you need to, I mean, the human rights, you, you are corporations, you are not, let's say, abstract entities, you are formed by people. And therefore, I mean, you also should be bound by, by human rights uh, regulation. But, but I mean, the consideration of, of a corporation like Nestlé as, as uh, an entity with, uh, with rights and duties and rights and uh, and let's say, uh, capabilities of doing things, well, it's another social construct. There are social constructs that I think that are quite positive and others are negative. But in any case, social constructs are not forever. They can be modified as long as the the, the communities or the societies we, we deem necessary. Right, and I suppose social constructs and the fact that... Um the so-called nature of something can change based on how we talk about it is important because there are behavioral implications. We'll act differently towards each other in that thing based on how we're talking about it. Yeah, of course. I mean, that, and that was yeah. one of my, let's say, my driving research questions in, in the PhD is that, uh, well, how do people value food? That was the, the initial more rhetorical question. But then I, I, my research question is that I assume that your social construct on food, so the way you value food, shapes your food policy options. So if you consider, let's say, as a, as a personal approach to food, that food is a pure commodity, it's obvious that all your policy recommendations or your preferences on policy recommendations will be market-oriented. Because you think that it's just a commodity, like a, a TV set or right. like, a, like a, any piece of iron, and therefore, well, the market demand offer is fine. But then you have other resources like uh, human organs, okay? And uh, human organs, they could also be um, allocated through market mechanism. So you have uh, two kidneys, therefore you can sell one, and I need one, so I will offer in the supply-demand market uh, rule, and then, well, you will sell and I will buy yeah, but I mean, we human beings, for the time being, have decided that human organs are not tradable. It's strictly based on moral considerations. So, but it's, a, it's another social construct. So, right. the, the way, the, going back to the food, if, if I consider that food is a human right, if I consider that food is a commons or a public good, and there are nuanced differences between considering food as a public good or food as a commons, but I mean, but let's say, generally speaking, sometimes they can also be clustered. But if I consider that food is a human right, a public good, and a commons, uh, my my policy preferences would be different from the one that considers food as a commodity. And I will I will prefer I will opt for considerations that are more related to universal food entitlements or. Uh, food banks uh, to be included in the social security system and not uh, being run by private entities based on charity, 
and charity is not a human right entitlement. Or I could think about uh, school feeding programs uh, to be, let's say, embedded in the public school system, not to be outsourced to companies like Sodexo or private companies of catering. Uh, another option is that, uh, well, as a kind of, uh, let's say, symbolic uh, approach uh, to food as a human right and a commons, we could have public bakeries where everybody every day could get access to one baguette, one bread loaf. Why not? I mean, if, uh, if we in, in Europe, for instance, if we have access to universal health uh, coverage and we can go, we can drive through a public system of roads, why not to get access to bread freely? And it's never, when I say freely, it's freely for the citizens that they have already, they have previously paid with their taxes. Because uh, as we understand uh, in our countries, that we, in Sp well, in the States it's not that much, but at least uh, throughout Europe, all the countries in Europe, they enjoy uh, education and health as public goods. And uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean that, ne that either doctors or teachers, they, they don't get paid. No, everybody gets paid. But uh, there is, a, let's say, a, a universal entitlement for everybody to get access to a minimum amount of years or a minimum uh, uh, amount of uh, of um, healthy health treatments uh, in order to cover your your education and in order to cover your health. The, the same approach that we use, we have in Europe for education and health is not applied to food. And, and of course, it's not applied also to water. That is an interesting issue because uh, except in, in Ireland, where the water is considered as a public good and people, they don't have to pay water bills. In the rest of Europe, you have to pay the, 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 the water bills. But in Spain, and I, that's an interesting, let's say, legal nuance in Spain. Uh, that where what water is considered a commons and a public good. So you only paid for the chloration and the transportation to your home, but but not for water itself, yeah? because it cannot be because it's uh, officially considered as a public good and a commons. But uh, you pay for all the process. Yeah, I've been thinking throughout this this whole conversation about this idea of that you mentioned earlier of changing the narratives as as and changing the narratives being the seed if you want to see it which then later leads to policy changes and then more practical changes and then funding from the states etc and it, it makes me think of when you when i hear the term food as a commons uh, that it's more to me i would think it as like a meta commons where you have when, I, when i'm thinking about other common scholars and other commons frameworks for understanding what food as a commons might mean I start to see that these there's these different webs of path dependencies that we are kind of stuck down and within and food can can be seen as a meta commons because you have other commons within it which are privatized for example governance you have a lot of for example certifiers uh, you can give the example of third party certifiers such as fair trade or organic or direct trade and you know those are non-democratic, largely privatized certification schemes, which are trying to improve the commodity chains of these products. And to the extent to which those are just reinforcing the commoditization of food, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. And But there's also the idea of land. So we privatize space and property to grow food. <clears throat> we also privatize the knowledge about food. So we have patents. And a lot of those patents are accrued to large companies um, who genetically modification, for example. And you also have the, the privatization of the unit itself, right? So as you said, it, it, in contrast to water, we actually make the food and someone owns it and then it's sold. And, you know, those are just a few, few examples I could think of, of how there are many different interconnected path dependencies, which we are on this path going down uh, to why the food system is the way it is right now. And one thing I've been wondering is how do we begin kind of more practically to change that narrative or those narratives, which you mentioned, which are going to start to help us unpack some of those, which we are locked into quite strongly in the current food system. I wish I could uh, know the answer. I mean, uh, I can just figure out a few things. Um, the first one is that uh, I will depart from uh, my uh, literature review, the analysis that I did on how the scholars uh, in the 20th century 
uh, how they frame food. Because uh, following Immanuel Willerstein, I think that, uh, you know, academia, it pretty much uh, shapes, uh, let's say, the, the buzzwords and, and the sharp ideas that they later on are politicized. But on the other side, uh, the academia is also highly politicized and influenced by the dominant ideas uh, within the political realm. And uh, that I think that, that is, that's exactly what has happened. Because uh, I, based on my, my systematic review, I came up with, with shocking figures. Uh, I mean, between 1900 and, and 2016, let's say 116 years, I did a, a literature review and I found only 179 hits, let's say, where food was considered as a commons or a public good, compared to close to 50,000 uh, references where food was considered as a commodity or a, pri a private good. Later on, I was cleaning this 179 and I came with 70 references. So in the in the whole century, and up to three years ago, uh, only 70 academic papers were mentioning in different ways, in some cases very purportedly, in some others just uh, slight references uh, to the, let's say, the engram, the, 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 the what's the name, the, the segment of, or, or the sentences of food as a, com as a common good, food as a commons, or food is a commons, or food as is a public good. And, and I was reviewing the, the references, and just a few of them were basically proposing this normative shift. Compared to close to 50,000, and in many cases very influential papers, economists and sociologists, philosophers, everybody, policy, I mean, policy, political scholars, 50,000 uh, academic papers that were referring to food as a private good, dominant in the economic literature of fruit as a, co as a commodity. So, I mean, those were, those scholars were basically shaping the, the narrative that later on was uh, when, when, the, when Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, they took power and they decided to speed up the neoliberal paradigm. They already, they had already, or let's say the, the, the field already, they have already prepared. And, and, what could we do? I mean, we could, of course, I mean, I, I wouldn't wait till we have um, 10,000 uh, academic papers that they refer to the, the pros and cons and and, uh, and the good positive implications of considering food as a commons or a public good. But, but I think that is important. And I've noticed that since I published my papers in 2016, the first one, and later on, especially in 17 and 18, and since the publication of our handbook on food as a commons, there is a growing literature that is using that uh, relatively novel uh, conceptual approach to food uh, to, to develop new approaches. And new approaches that are basically substantiating research on, on customary food systems. And uh, for instance, we are going to, to publish something on how the, the Native uh, Americans in Canada, how do they value the food systems and the cosmovisions that they are using how they basically reject uh, the consideration of food as a commodity uh, because it's multidimensional and, and it has, a, you know, a soul and these type of things. But these this customary food systems and the, the customary valuations of food are, are pretty much widespread all over the world because it's not just the, the Canadians' uh, native people. You can find uh, the same in, in, in the Central American indigenous communities, in, in, in Java, in Indonesia, in Philippines, in, in Africa. So it's, it's basically a widespread approach to food that it, it contrasts a lot sharply with our Western rational approach to food mm. as a commodity. So and at the same time, this idea of food as a commons, it's also, uh, let's say, a driving motivation or at least a different valuation that you can find in, in these modern alternative food systems. You know, the community supported agriculture, food buying groups, uh, uh, this type of um, guerrilla garden, uh, public orchards, uh, um, cropping in, 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 um, in back and lands. Uh, well, uh, this idea of, uh, of uh, um, 
the common the the communalization of uh, of um, public uh, territories that have been abandoned. So they're in in let's say what I call the hipsters, you know, urban dwellers that they are trying to do new things uh, in the food system. They also have they also share this uh, this multiple valuation of food. So I think that. Uh, we need to keep on writing extensively on on the idea that food is not just a commodity, food, uh, and therefore not only through market mechanisms. And now I've seen that there are people that are already writing more and more on the non-market uh, systems for food distribution and how relevant they are, like uh, this Gibson Graham uh, tandem that they have been uh, also writing on, on the issue. So that's it's an interesting thing. O- on top of that, and you have already mentioned that it's not just food, what should be valued as a commons. I think that is the entire food system. And uh, some colleagues of mine uh, in this handbook on food as a commons that we wrote uh, together, or let's say I had the privilege to co-edit, they, they wrote a chapter on food systems as a commons. So we need to re-commonify not just food as the material object, but also you rightly mentioned land, uh, that, it, well, the idea of land as a commons or as a collective uh, I mean, let's say, as a resource with collective proprietary regimes, well, it's something very common that many other authors throughout history they have been referring to. Seeds as a commons, that to me, seeds is one of the most obvious natural resources that should be regarded, value, and governed as a commons. Not just because you have the material seeds, but also you have all the attached knowledge that has been created by generations of farmers uh, throughout history. Water, as you mentioned, and we have already mentioned the, the idea of water as a commons, knowledge, that of course knowledge should be a commons, and it's again something obvious to me, and that's why I'm pretty much against the the enclosure of uh, of uh, copyrights, you know, and proprietary rights on knowledge, because even, not just me, but I've, I've read, uh, let's say, a year ago or a couple of years ago, even in The Economist, you know, the Bible of the neoliberal world, they were saying that patents, they seem to be deterring innovation. So it's a, and, and now we have seen that uh, in the, I don't know if you are going to ask me something about the, the post-pandemic uh, world, but uh, I've been recently experiencing and reading uh, a lot on, on, the, on how, let's say, common people in Spain, but I, well, I've seen that it's all over, but uh, basically in Spain where I am now confined, uh, common people by themselves are getting around, uh, they are getting together through virtual means, uh, through internet, and they are organizing themselves in collective actions in order to fulfill immediate needs, in order to provide uh, masks for the for doctors and nurses, in order to provide uh, these uh, breathing ventilators that are pretty much in need uh, now in Spain. So, I mean, one of the key things about uh, this pandemic, as any other shock, important shock uh, for societies or for, in that case, in this case, for the entire humanity, is that uh, shocks are always opportunities. And I think that uh, we need to reframe how we value food and we need to use a new vocabulary for the post-pandemic world once uh, everything gets over. And I think that uh, key elements of this new vocabulary could be care, could be empathy, mutual aid. Uh, this uh, famous work uh, by Kropotkin, this Russian anarchist that uh, wrote a marvelous book uh, on mutual aid at the end of uh, 18th century. Uh, collective actions, uh, autonomy, working for the common good, or for public interest and not just for profit. You know, public regulations, everything related to public things, the state, you know, doing public things, public health, public education, public food, public water, whatever. It's going to be definitely revamp and high profile uh, in the post-pandemic world. Self-sufficiency in the food system, you know, to be so much reliant on external imports, imports, as is currently the case in UK, it's, uh, it's not, strategically speaking, it's not very wise because you are highly dependent on what the others can do. And uh, therefore, national self-sufficiency and community self-sufficiency are also, let's say, new words that I'm, I'm pretty sure that they will high-profile. Open knowledge, 
now it's obvious that it's not the corporations with copyright uh, mechanisms that are going to come to save the world. It's basically people doing things by themselves in a peer-to-peer um, open knowledge exchange and collaborating quickly, like the researchers, in order to get the vaccine. Not for profit, doing things for the others. I mean, austerity and austerity and globalization are two words, two concepts that were pretty much a la mode and basically high profile in, in almost every document on economics. And I think that both things, austerity and globalization, are going to fade away. Yeah, for a little bit of context, we're we're recording this on March 27th, 2020, right in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and right where we're the three of us are sitting in the US, Germany and Spain are are definitely the hot spots at the moment for that. And there's some interesting, I think, discussions that are coming from that. And at least in Germany, you know, you're you have to stay inside. It's heavily recommended. But the one thing you can go out and do is buy food. <laughs> and and that's an interesting reflection as as probably it's an indication of of that human rights aspect of food as a commons. And I wonder if well, two things there. I wonder if uh, some of the supply or the commoditization aspects of the food system now that we're seeing in the pandemic will kind of show some of its vulnerabilities. Um, I'm not sure how much of the food production sectors are being shut down like a lot of the other parts of the economy and the supply chains, et cetera. And I wonder how that's going to reveal certain uh, lacks of resilience or resilience, for example, in in our food supply chains. And the other is the origin of the virus itself. Um, I'm not sure if that's completely understood yet, but from what I've heard, it's it's an origin in a food market. In principle, uh, the last thing that I read, it, it was uh, it's close. It's, it's almost confirmed that it was the pangolin, uh, this mammal that is basically. I mean, the pangolin is a, is a highly threatened mammal that it was on the verge of extinction in, in many countries because of uh, human traffic, I mean, f- because of illegal trafficking. And uh, yeah, and you're right. And you rightly mentioned the word resilience. You know, now, well, now, I mean, to me, there are two, let's say, interesting elements that are coming up of, of this pandemic. Uh, the first one is that people are realizing, broadly speaking, how important are the food workers, you know, food producers, uh, people are that are that are collecting and harvesting food, mostly unskilled, low-paid uh, uh, immigrants in many cases in Europe. So, how important they are in order to keep the the food, uh, let's say, a viable food chain. Um, of course, I mean now we have seen that uh, because of the oligopolic hand that uh, many retailers have in in our countries in Europe. The extreme case is also in Australia. Uh, well, how 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 what's the the leverage power that they have now to distribute food? And we have seen that in some cases there there are problems in 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 the food supply. And I've seen that I've already uh, good friends in the states that they have already reporting that uh, they go now to supermarkets and there is no salt, uh, there is no flour. And uh, it's it's quite difficult to find uh, not just uh, toilet paper that is you know, the joke for uh, for the entire world, but uh, many other essential foods, and uh, and also in the UK. But but at the same time, I mean, uh, how resilient or not resilient have been our food systems that we thought that you know as as let's say a month ago we had plenty of everything everywhere every time, so there was no seasonality anymore. We could eat strawberries uh, from January to December or any type of food uh, anywhere in the country. Now, uh, we thought that our food, uh, food chains, let's say that the European food chains were extremely, let's say, consistent and, and re- I mean, resilient. They were quite strong. But now, you know, after a month, and, and we, we are just starting, okay, we, we have just been confined, at least in Spain, for, for less than 10 days. So we have just started to see that, well, they perhaps they were not so resilient. Definitely not in UK, okay? That's obvious. And and for the time being, just a few countries like Kazakhstan, they have started to impose some trade barriers, okay? The, so Kazakhstan is uh, has already stopped uh, the exportation, the export of uh, of uh, wheat flour, flour. Uh, sorry, uh, wheat. Sorry. Um, but I mean, if other countries follow, well. 
we we cannot see just a health shock with the with the COVID the pandemic. We can see a, a world food crisis, and I'm pretty sure that the world food crisis it's going to hit harder and longer than the the casualties produced by the health epidemic. So I mean, with this high dependence on on uh, corporate uh, institutions in the food chain, with uh, all this, I mean, these ideas of you know national food sovereignty that was uh, since the very beginning a discarded idea, considered out fashion and you know not strategic and not uh, not not being not wise because you know I mean yeah, everything you know the the globalized market can supply to everybody in a cheaper way now we have well we are seeing that you know being so highly dependent from the others supplies it may not be such a wise decision at least not in time of crisis michael you want to add in there well, it's a, it's a question slash comment that I've been kind of building up in my mind for the last like 40 minutes. So really going back to something we talked about earlier, these different schools of thought about the commons, I think you're right that, you know, we come from, we come from these different schools, we represent them rather differently. So I'm, you know, I was weaned as a, as an Ostromite, as we used to call ourselves. I never liked the term. Well, I don't know if it was that common, so to speak. And I remember, you know, being taught about these, you know, these, these, the difference between private goods and public goods. There's this, um, paradigmatic typology that we're all taught. And there's a very strong diagnostic logic to that. The idea being that if it's a common good, we, we treat it differently than we treat a private good. And there's the assumption that if it's a private good, we don't need to worry. There are fewer governance issues because everything's private and so there's not going to be as much interdependence. And so that's how I was taught. And I can see the logic there. And I kind of want to highlight for myself and I think for our listeners the, the profound difference that I hear from you, which I think is important to reflect on as someone coming from the school that I come from, that it kind of turns that logic on its head and says, these are not inherent qualities of these phenomena. They are they are constructs that we're imposing on them. And so to, to call something a commons is not to say, well, it's, this is an inherent thing about this and therefore we should treat it certain ways. It's saying, no, we're calling it a commons as a reflection of how we want to treat it socially. And I could see that being the same for a private good, that things aren't inherently private or not. It depends on how we want to treat them. And because I was always a little uncomfortable with this logic that, well, if something's a private good, it means that there must not be interdependence here. There must not be ways in which we affect each other as based on how we use that private good. But, but you know, econ- economists would call these things like externalities. There's always been this assumption that there's not externalities in markets, or at least that there are, there are exceptions to the rule as opposed to being just ubiquitous features. Uh, so I'm trying to kind of paraphrase what I heard from you and make sense of it based on my own perspective. Does that make sense to you? Because I th- actually think this is a very, for my community, I think this is a very important issue to kind of take on board and internalize because it affects how we're, we view what we're trying to do intellectually. Yes, I mean, Mike, I fully agree. I mean, I cannot, I cannot agree more. And especially, I mean, I recognize and I v- highly value your let's say, approach, and I would say humble approach uh, as an economist, or at least coming from the economical, the economic uh, epistemology, recognizing that, well, your view on what commons are or how commons could be governed is just part of the social construct around the commons. Right. And, uh, and well, in that case, I think that if you have time in, in the future, I would uh, strongly advise you to, to have a, a read. And I would love to get your comments on a, on a chapter. Or the, well, it, it's meant to be published as an article, but it's just a working paper so far. On, on this, uh, it's called Epistemologies of Food, and, and where I explain the five schools of thought that I came up uh, with uh, based on my, my literature research and, and, let's say, my own understanding. And, and basically, the, the, the economist uh, approach to the commons, it's um, at least, I mean, not, not just me, but some other authors have already criticized to be highly reductionist. 
because it's, it's only based on two features. So rivalry and excludability. Right. And based on that, you basically, you, I mean, economists, they define the entire world. And, and, and you know, the key thing is that when you really deep extensively the founding fathers of that, basically, and you have, if I remember, Samuelson, no, Musgrave, Buchanan, especially Musgrave and Buchanan, they, they were quite wise and nuanced in saying that, hey, be aware that what we propose is just a theoretical approach to the issues, okay? So they, they didn't mean that they wanted to perfectly describe reality. And it was highly theoretical, and they already warned us on that. But the point is that when you remove these disclaimers, well, and you say, well, that's the way reality is, it's not, it's not anymore uh, an epistemological, I mean, let's say a, phenomenolog a phenomenological approach, what means the way we perceive, it's an epistemological approach. So food is not working as a commodity sometimes. Food is a commodity, period. <laughs> so... Uh, Samuelson and Buchanan said that food is a commodity, and therefore, as a commodity, well, it has to be allocated through market mechanisms. Right. And and that's I mean, I before I I forgot to mention that there was also the, the fifth school of thought was the the political school of thought. So there are authors like Dardot and Laval, the French these French, uh, let's say, philosophers and, and political scholars, that in, in in a recently famous book that they published a few years ago. They mentioned that uh, this this idea on the instituting power of the commons. So people, uh, when they gather themselves together and they decided to do something together with their own rules, they already institute, they already create a commons. And and a good example that we have seen in our generation is Wiki, Wikipedia. Well, another good example is Internet. So they are commons created by, at a certain point, out of nothing. There was nothing. And let's say 10 years ago, there was a Wikipedia. And Wikipedia works as a commons because it's governed by the people, not by the states, not by the market. And that's why you have these three other, that they are always interacting and finding, let's say, power balances between the state, command and control, Leviathan, Hobbes, these, these things. You have the market, you know, Invisible Hand, Adam Smith, John Locke, uh, so private property, uh, the best allocation, um, profit making, maximizing benefits, uh, minimizing costs, these type of things. And then you have people, people doing things by themselves, neither commanded by rules and regulations from the state, not only pursuing profit. And, and the key thing about that, and it's now where the, the historical school of thought comes uh, on board, is that historians have already proven that those uh, collective arrangements, let's say commons uh, designed by people and governed by people, and it's something that was already studied by Eleanor Ostrom from a very particular point of view, they are quite resilient. So we have examples of uh, people governing natural resources with the same type of institutions that they last centuries and centuries. And I, in one of my presentations, I provide a few examples. Europe, Europe is basically more than 10% of the European territories are already either owned or governed as commons. However, commons as a war, as a concept, no matter, well, however, understanding you may have, words as a common, it doesn't appear at all in the common agricultural policies. So it doesn't exist, despite the fact that uh, more than 10% of the European territory, what means more than 13, 14 million hectares in Europe, are governed as commons. So the commons are quite resilient, and, all, and I'm pretty sure that you have seen that in your multiple examples in different countries like, I mean, Costa Rica, Panama, Indonesia, whatever. I mean, how institutions that they have been lasting for centuries, like in India or like in, in Africa, we have wonderful examples in Italy, 
in Spain as well, uh, a few things. Uh, if you're interested in, I mean, I can send you a PowerPoint where I've, I'm giving specific examples of European commons. Uh, they are resilient because they are useful for the people, because they are sustainable, because they manage resources in a sustainable way. And in any case, I don't mean that they don't have problems or they are, all of them are ideal, not at all. They are human constructions and therefore they are subject to human perversion and, and let's say human nature. But in many cases, they are useful and, and they are resilient and they can withstand different political regimes. They can withstand different climate shocks. And they are still surviving because they are useful for the people that they created them or the people that they inherited them. Hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, I would love to read that chapter when you have it. Thanks. Well, it's, uh, I can you, it's already it's already in in the web. You know, I mean, <laughs> being consequent uh, with with my speech, uh, I'm always posting everything in the web in open format. Uh, hmm. Except for the book, because the book, uh, I had to give a concession in order to position the ideas in the academic world. Uh, we had to publish the book with a, a highly respected uh, publishing house like Rutledge, and they always work uh, under copyright walls. Right. What we did is that we gave up our royalties and in order to have two chapters in open format since the very beginning. And uh, well, at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm giving the, the book to anyone that it's uh, that requests me in an email or whatever. But uh, but on, on the other on, on all the other papers, I've always posting everything in in open repositories or ResearchGate or in SSRN. Or... Yeah, we can link to those in the show notes for this episode. That's terrific. Yeah, it's interesting as you made the comment. I mean, academic. The academia as a public, largely a publicly funded institution, is one of the most privatized knowledge creators at the moment. Yeah, well, yeah, man, yeah you're right. I, I used to work with academia, but not anymore since uh, they were already sold out to, to a private company. So that's why now I'm just using ResearchGate. So, Michael, do you have any other final questions? We just talked about the one the issue that I really wanted to bring up. I think there's a lot of important... I mean, one of the themes that's emerged in this podcast has been the importance of interdisciplinarity and the difficulties of crossing intellectual boundaries. And so I think there's a lot of important space to be covered between the different commons communities. So I was glad that we were able to kind of touch on that. Michael, well, you touched a very wonderful issue because uh, just uh, briefly, well, it's true. I mean, transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary research, I think it's essential if you want to move forward outside let's say, the, the, the regime uh, barriers, the regime uh, frameworks, if we want to really think out of the box, if we want to move forward science, uh, we cannot just be constrained to be working, researching, or let's say proposing political things within our specific domains. But on the other side, you know, in our academic world, being transdisciplinary, it seems it's not highly appreciated. And uh, it's not appreciated no. in, order, in order to publish because there are not many journals that they appreciate to, to let's say, touch the different domains and different scopes, mixing philosophy. You know, in my case, I was doing my research. My, my, I had two co-directors. One was Olivier de Schutter, the former special rapporteur on the right to food, and he is working in the faculty of law in, in Leuven. And the other co-director was uh, Philippe Barret, that he's an agricultural engineer like me. And because I was an agricultural engineer, I, I could not be enrolled in the faculty of law to do my transdisciplinary research. I had to be enrolled in the school of uh, agricultural uh, engineering because that was my domain. <laughs> and, uh, and then when I was mixing, you know, philosophical approach, historical approaches with statistics, because of course I had to do, I was doing my PhD with, uh, with uh, publications, not with articles. Uh, I had uh, one article I was doing in statistics and so, and then the other one I was doing, I was working on the right to food. So I published something on, on the absence of the right to food in the SDGs. And on other article was pretty much more on these schools of thought. So it was a mix between philosophy, history and, and political approach. It was, I mean, I mean, in many cases, I mean, like, frankly speaking, some of my papers or most of them were initially rejected in, in, in journals. Because they told me, well, you are embracing too much. 
or you know it's not uh, I mean, why why you why don't you parcel your research because it's too long and why don't you focus on that specific thing and you leave the other so i mean transdisciplinary it's a tough domain to work yes it could be encouraged more for sure do you have any final thoughts today well i mean uh, the final thought is that i i hope that uh, i've already sparked a doubt in your <laughs> previous approaches to the commons and uh, I would encourage uh, the, the listeners and, and the people that are going to to have access to this podcast uh, to keep on using the, the these these different approaches to to food and then to essential natural resources. I mean, food, water, and air, and to definitely question that the market is the only mechanism that it's uh, the most appropriate and and the the most. Uh, efficient to allocate essential resources. I think that it's not, uh, not just because I think that it's not personally, because, but because there are myriads and multiple examples all over the world where people, they, they govern and they consider food in a different way. And those uh, multiple examples are highly resilient and highly, and they are very useful for the communities themselves. So I think that we need, a, I need the support of uh, many researchers all over the world to be providing additional examples on, on a different valuation of food as a commons, as a public good, and as a human right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It was, uh, it was great to hear your thoughts. Yes, thank you. Thanks to you. It was quite a pleasure. Thanks again to all of you for listening and supporting this podcast. The show notes, which include more information about our guests and links to the material mentioned in the episodes, can be found on most podcast players or on our website. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play, and it can also be streamed from our website. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, where we would be happy to connect and continue these discussions. Thanks again.